Amen. Well, I, I am glad to have my voice this morning. I, I have the foresight not to scream and yell um, while I'm away at camp. Uh, so I can come back and speak with you this morning. <clears throat> Pastor Molly does such a great job. We're yeah. really, really glad to have her here on the team. And our kids are really blessed for her. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, I used to... Uh, I used to love reading mystery novels. Anyone else mystery novels when you were a kid? Uh, for me, it was the Hardy Boy mysteries. I, I almost have a full collection of all of the books. I, in fact, I have a list on my phone of which ones uh, that I'm missing, so anytime I'm at a used bookstore, I'll check to make sure uh, I, I, can, uh, I can finish my collection. Um, but if you don't know, Frank and Joe Hardy are the, the twin, or the uh, two, two brothers that were... Uh, the teenage sleuths that always somehow found themselves in the middle of intrigue and danger and mystery. Uh, and one of my favorite one of their stories was when they broke up a counterfeiting ring operating out of an old mill on the outskirts of town. Somehow these two teenage sleuths were able to point up uh, and, and follow all of the trails that uh, not even the police or their father or professional detective could put together. Uh, they were just better sleuths than them. Uh, something like, uh, I guess they were trying to inspire young children. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but counterfeiting, counterfeiting has always been around, and it, not just as a plot point for uh, you know, your dime store mystery novel or your old silent movie. Uh, nowadays, however, it's, it's typically not three guys in an old mill with a printing press. Uh, counterfeiting has taken on a global scale. Uh, nation states are really the only groups that can afford to convincingly counterfeit anymore because money has become so technologically advanced. Uh, there's so many countermeasures embedded into our money uh, that you just you can't possibly afford to convincingly reproduce money uh, in a way that you could pass off as a counterfeit. In fact, all you have to do is take a look at a, uh, a bill uh, hold it up to the light, and you can start to see some of the uh, different countermeasures that are, are put into these uh, bills that prevent them from being counterfeited. It said that uh, to print one of these bills, uh, the U.S. Mint has a printing press that can apply nine tons of pressure on a printing plate. And what that allows them to do is print with such fine detail, it's called microprinting, that... Uh, no other kind of printing press could possibly recreate the level of detail. In fact, if you take a $100 bill, it said you can look on the collar of Benjamin Franklin and you can read the words United States of America. Uh, and amongst many other countermeasures, it's, it's made counterfeiting uh, really not profitable for your uh, old, uh, old mill counterfeiting rings anymore. However, in 1861, when the Secret Service, that's actually the agency uh, intended to prevent counterfeiting and protect our currency, when the Secret Service was formed, it was estimated that anywhere between one-third and one-half of all currency in the United States was fake. Can you believe that? One-third to one-half of all the bills in circulation were fake. Um, that's why they formed the Secret Service. It was a really big problem. Nowadays, that number is something like 0.01% of all bills. The security measures have become advanced that uh, small-scale counterfeiters have, have practically all gone out of business. However, 
We face a different kind of counterfeit today. And I believe God wants to use me to tell you today that the world we're living in has been passing you counterfeit bills. Uh, a counterfeit Jesus, if you will. This in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. He says, there will be false teachers among you. We have an enemy who's ready to pounce like a lion and not just wound you, but destroy you. Between algorithms and news outlets, certain educational systems, things we used to think we could trust, they're subtly and not so subtly trying to change our worldview and turn it away from the Bible. And I'm not talking about conspiracy theories. I'm talking about the sinful nature of humanity. The world is trying to talk us out of living God's way. And this is not a new thing. It's been happening ever since sin hit the scene in the very beginning. Between the things you hear on Netflix and see on the news, the things that come across your feed on Instagram and Facebook and TikTok, you've got friends that live their lives and make decisions based on a different set of assumptions and perceptions and experiences than you. Many of you come from non-Christian families and the ones that you love have a different moral compass. And don't be offended on this one, but some of you claim to be Christians and yet you've unknowingly adopted beliefs and languages and ways of thinking that are influenced more by other religions and spiritual systems than the word of God. All of this is what we call worldview, the overall perspective through which we see and interpret the world. Like a pair of sunglasses that can tint your view, it's your story about reality. And we're all living out a certain worldview. Statistically speaking, religion in America is not on the decline. However, less than 3% of the next generation, Generation Z, sees the world and lives their life based on a biblical worldview, what God's laid out in the Bible. And when polled on what they believe, an increasing number of people will claim no religious affiliation. They won't pick a specific religion. Uh, they create their own worldview by mixing things that they like from different belief systems, compiling a bunch of different counterfeits into one worldview. And I don't think that this way of living and believing is causing people to flourish. It's not the way we were created to worship. We've walked away from the authority of God and the Bible. We've accepted a counterfeit. You know, I love what... Jesus said in Matthew 13, verse 44, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. He hid it again. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. The, the real Jesus is not a counterfeit. He's reality. Yeah. Following Jesus, thinking God's thoughts, and living God's way is worth giving up everything else to Embrace it, yes. but it's not easy or popular. You will likely face rejection, but he is the treasure in the field. And if it's true that Jesus is who he claimed to be, then our hearts will be empty until we worship him alone and not some counterfeit. If he is the way, the truth, and the life, then we simply must give up everything else to gain him. You know, I've been hearing more and more about these stories of moral failures of faith leaders and more public faith deconstructions, more people that pick and choose what they think is true for them until nothing anymore makes sense. 
every single one of those stories is someone rejecting a counterfeit Jesus that they've mistaken for the real thing. And when that counterfeit doesn't live up to their expectations or desires, they reject a counterfeit thinking that they're rejecting the real thing. As Christ followers, we have to train our minds to sift all the junk that we see and hear and experience and make sure we base our lives on the genuine article, on truth, not getting swindled into accepting a counterfeit. And we need the Holy Spirit to do this. There is an onslaught of opinions from every single person on earth via the internet. And they give you their opinions every day, whether you want it or not. And we can't just accept what the world is feeding us, even if it sounds logical or feels good or keeps you in other people's good graces. We need to stop being lulled to sleep by the Pied Piper and clean house in our hearts. Really filter out the junk, the lies, the sins that have made their home in our bed without us knowing it. We need to replace the world's distorted vision of reality with sure and stable footing, the Bible. We need a a rational faith that will stand up to false teachers. And with great love, we need to take back any ground the enemy has tried to steal. We need to reject the counterfeit. You know, I think my story is a, a pretty common one, especially if you grew up in and around the church. In my formative years, I, I, I placed my faith in a counterfeit Jesus. And it wasn't through the fault of my teachers or my parents or really anyone in the church leadership. I just didn't understand what Jesus actually did and what he required of me. My, my faith was based more on fear of punishment and pride in my own accomplishments than it was on the person and the work of Jesus. I don't know about you, but I I remember two distinct fears as a kid. One was accidentally sinning and then walking out and getting hit by a bus, uh, which would, of course, damn me to hell for eternity. Um, A picture which had been vividly dramatized before my eyes on countless occasions. And the other fear, of course, was missing the rapture, uh, because, again, I had accidentally sinned. Somehow in my childhood imagination, uh, every sin was, was somehow accidental and not my fault. Um, I was never at fault for my sin, right? It, it was, uh, you know, something minor and, and inconsequential, you know, a, a stolen cookie from the cookie jar, a lie, being mean to my siblings. Uh, but anytime I would come home uh, and uh, there was no one around, my first thought in my head was, oh no, I've missed it. <laughs> I know none of you have ever been there before. Uh, I would immediately panic and begin to look around quietly and quickly, searching the house for any sign that uh, my family was still here on planet Earth and not 15,000 feet up in the air on their way to glory, looking down, shaking their head at the fact that I had been left behind. As you can imagine, much of my religious behavior as a result was motivated by these fears. I wanted to protect myself from hell or being left behind. Very little of my religious behavior was connected with a vibrant, growing love for Jesus. In fact, being motivated by fear led to self-preservation-based motivations. It's just another way of saying that I loved myself and my comfort and my well-being more than I loved Jesus. 
And as I got older, I didn't exactly get rid of the fear motivation. I just supplemented it with pride and the desire to prove myself. I wanted to prove to my parents that I was a good son and to my teachers that I was a good student and to the people in my church that I was a good, well-behaved, spiritually mature young man worthy of their notice and applause. Even the best things I did were motivated by a desire to be seen, to elevate myself and separate myself from all those lesser losers. Turned to self-justification, a works-based righteousness. See, I thought my performance secured the approval of others. And I needed that approval because I couldn't sense the unconditional approval of God. So as a teen, I, I focused on my behavior in, in all areas. And on the rare day, I, I did my devotions and prayed for longer than two minutes and didn't say or do anything I wouldn't have said or done in front of my parents. Um, I felt like a Christian rock star, you know, secure in my standing before God because of my behavior, not because of my understanding of the gospel. However, on the much more common day, when I would play video games instead of reading my Bible and uh, wouldn't remember to pray until I was just about to fall asleep, I wondered exactly where I stood with God. The bedtime prayer was kind of like a last-ditch effort to clear the slate and hope God would be okay with that. My relationship with God was all about my ability to perform and behave right. There wasn't much joy in it. Actually, there was a lot of guilt and shame because I was not very good at behaving right and looking good. And guilt and shame are not tools of the gospel. And it's all because I'd placed my faith in a counterfeit Jesus and believed a counterfeit gospel. Our main text this morning is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4. And it says this, You happily put up with whatever anyone tells you, even if they preach a different Jesus than the one we preach, or a different kind of spirit than the one you received, or a different kind of gospel than the one you believed. Paul was following up with the Corinthian church in his second letter. And the Corinthians apparently were entertaining false teachers. And they believed those false teachers not based on the truth of what they preached, but based on their impressive credentials, their skilled preaching, and their powerful signs and wonders. They were being taught a counterfeit Jesus, but they couldn't see it. They were being given a counterfeit gospel by a counterfeit spirit, but they were blinded. This morning, we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about two counterfeit gospels and four counterfeit Jesuses and one counterfeit spirit I see at work in the world today. And of course, it's not an exhaustive list, but it's one I think is very prevalent in our churches today. So first, two counterfeit gospels I see being preached from our pulpits all the time. They are this, moralism which says you should do better. It's the right thing to do. And a word I made up, motivationalism. You can be better. Think of all the possibilities. Both are really only interested in behavior modification. Uh, moralism takes the Bible and searches it for good moral examples. It instructs with moralistic commands. Do this, don't do that. 
Don't lie or cheat or steal. Treat others well and don't do bad things. Be a good person. The characters and the stories from the Bible become examples that we use to model our life after or warning tales about what not to do. Motivationalism, on the other hand, seeks to inspire you to believe in yourself, to achieve more, to be better than others, to live your best life now. It places you at the center of the gospel story. You know, just think of all the things God could do for you, all the things you could achieve with God by your side. You can overcome all of your obstacles if you just believe in yourself and don't give up. The stories of the Bible become little more than positive, uplifting encouragement. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 says, No one is good, not even one. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that our goal should be to be a good person or that being one gets us brownie points in God's eyes. The exact opposite is true. Jesus' very reason to come to earth was to die in the place of sinners because we could not live up to his law. The real insidious nature of these two counterfeit gospels is that they can be deceptively subtle. They can produce the same kind of behavior that many of us misidentify as the fruit of the Spirit. But you don't need the true gospel to make nice people. If all you're after is behavior modification, then moralism or motivationalism will suffice. To be truthful, you don't even really need the Bible if you just want inspiration and good behavior. Aesop's fables and chicken soup for the soul will do for that job. You know, if it were just my job as the youth pastor here uh, to make moral, good-behaving, upstanding citizens, I would have it pretty easy. That's not a terribly difficult thing to do. Behavior modification is very easy to observe. External holiness is simple to legislate. Do this, don't do that. Wear this, don't wear that. Say this, don't say that. And behavior is easy to measure. You know, I I used to only pray once a week. Now I pray twice a week, right? Two times. Um, I used to cuss every other word. Now I only cuss when pastor's not around. (laughs) Easy to measure. Uh, We love to know where we stand as human beings, and we love keeping score. That's why we like to track behavior. And, And measuring that behavior addresses some of the pressures that we feel. Parents, you all know this. You, you know the pressure of wanting to have a good kid. Or maybe not even just a good kid. One that appears good in public, right? <laughs> a lot of you parents would be thrilled with me uh, as a youth pastor if I could just keep your son out of trouble and your daughter out of an unhealthy dating relationship. right? If the kids in the youth group just behaved themselves and looked like good Christians, then I would be like the second coming of Jesus for these youths. <laughs> Uh, We use behavior modification because it's what we're used to. Many of us grew up in an environment where external behavior was the only measure of sanctification. Our faith was defined mostly in terms of what we did. And if God used that kind of environment to save you, you might assume that it would work for others. You may have thrived in an environment of legalism. I know I sure did. But if you did... That's the grace of God. We have to remind ourselves that sometimes God works through us 
but all the time he's working in spite of us. Just because it worked doesn't mean it's healthy. And to make it even worse, the behavior modification at heart in these two false gospels place ourselves at the center of the gospel story. We end up thinking of our faith more in terms of what we do than what Jesus has done. These approaches appeal to our own self-salvation tendencies. Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 18 about rightly motivated religious activity and wrongly motivated religious activity. He says this, Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people. Eaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. See, this underlying message is, is filled with hints and undertones of, of earning God's grace and proving our own goodness. Moralism and motivationalism fail to highlight the truth that God saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy alone. Yes. Yes. So if these are two false gospels, what is the true gospel? Well, the true gospel is good news. So if it's not good news, it's not the gospel. The gospel is good news about Jesus. If it's not about Jesus, and it's not good news, it's not the gospel. The gospel is good news about the person and work of Jesus. The gospel is good news that God is rescuing sinners and restoring all of creation. The gospel is the good news that God is rescuing sinners and restoring all creation through the person and work of Jesus. This gospel is good news, and it's not just good advice. It's good news that what God required of us, he provided for us. Moralism begins and ends with the message, you should. Motivationalism begins and ends with the message, you can. The gospel begins with, you must, but you can't. See, we owe God a perfect performance record. It's the only way a holy God can accept us. The Ten Commandments set the bar high in terms of a moral law. Then Jesus came along and raised the bar even higher. He said it's not just about your behavior, it's about your heart. Here's what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 30. You've heard our ancestors were told you must not murder, for if you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. But I say, if you're even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. So if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and 
Suddenly remember someone has something against you. Leave your sacrifice at the altar. Go, be reconciled to that person, then come and offer your sacrifice. When you're on your way to the court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge, who will hand you over to an officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you've paid the last penny. You've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. How could we possibly live up to this standard? Right? The Ten Commandments were were something we could almost do in our own effort. Almost. But this, this standard seems impossible. We who were born into sin and have a natural bent towards wickedness, how could we possibly provide the righteousness required of us? We must, but we can't. I'm so thankful that the gospel doesn't end there. Instead, it continues with this message. Someone did, and in him you can. This is the love of a father sending his son to live and die in our place. And we are called to respond in repentance and faith. To turn away from every counterfeit and trust solely in the genuine article, Jesus. It's not a call to behave, it's a call to believe. Unfortunately, as a result of believing in one of these counterfeit Gospels, many have constructed a counterfeit Jesus to believe in as well. I have examples of that for you today. The first is this, Jesus as an inspirational example. The, the main idea here is Jesus did it so you can do it. The problem with this approach is it appeals to the person who measures their self-worth in terms of accomplishment, whether that's spiritual or otherwise. It works on the will, but not the heart. And if Jesus is only an example, then the average person is in a lot of trouble because Jesus was perfect. We need much more than an example to inspire us or it will eventually crush us. We need a savior to rescue us. As a result of this Jesus, you might get people to change their behavior, but it will be in your own strength and with a hint of moralism. And that's not the gospel. Jesus didn't die on the cross to give us a second chance to get things right. He did it because he knew we never could. Amen. Our second counterfeit Jesus is, is Jesus as a faithful sidekick. Right, Jesus as the, the Robin to my Batman. The main idea here is that, that Jesus did it and he'll help you do it. This approach reduces Jesus from the central character of the story of our salvation to a silent partner who simply helps us live right. He becomes nothing more than the greatest tool in your toolbox. Jesus gets the assist, but I get the goal. The gospel is not that he helps us get it right, but that he got it right 
in our place. That's a big, big difference. As a result, you might get people fired up, but you'll also make them self-reliant, filled with unhealthy expectations. If you think all you need is a boost from your buddy Jesus to be okay, you truly don't understand the depth of humanity's depravity. See, grasping on a profound level how lost we all are is the starting point for encountering the real Jesus. Our third counterfeit Jesus is Jesus as a jilted lover. Jesus did it for you, so don't hurt his feelings and let him down. This approach appeals to people's emotions and fears and sense of guilt. I would say most people don't want to disappoint or let anyone down, let alone God. But as I said, fear and guilt are not gospel motivations. They're tools of the enemy. So as a result, you might get emotionally driven responses, uh, especially from people who want to please people. Right? You make all sorts of radical promises about never, ever sinning ever again. Um, especially on like night three of camp uh, down at the altar. No? Nobody? Uh, just me? Okay. Uh, however, eventually you'll find... Someone else that you don't want to disappoint even more than God, be it your peers or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or your spouse. That kind of relationship will easily trump the change brought about by this counterfeit Jesus. Our fourth counterfeit is Jesus as a divine loophole. I think of this one as the, the, the man stranded on a raft in the middle of the ocean, right? God, if you just get me out of this one, right, I, I promise I'll do better. And the main idea is, is Jesus did it, and you should too. But if you don't, he'll get you out of it. He'll forgive you. This approach can combine with any of the other previous three. And it weakens the message of the gospel and the power of grace. See, either the grace of God is the most powerful force of change for mankind, or we're hopeless. The get-out-of-jail-free card approach to grace doesn't communicate that as a result some folks will come to see jesus as nothing more than their great eraser they do whatever they want and then come to him hoping he can hit the reset button for them they live whatever way they want to saturday and then come to church on sunday and beg for forgiveness makes you feel better but it doesn't invite you into the story of the gospel and eventually you stop believing it because either you believe you've fallen too far or your heart start, stops being drawn to a grace that's strong enough to forgive when your hearts wander but too weak to truly win your affections. Those are four counterfeits. What is the real deal then? Well, Jesus is your savior. He's your healer. He's your baptizer. And he's your soon coming king. Jesus came into the world born of a virgin, fully God and fully man. He lived a sinless life, performed many miracles, and instructed people on the newly inaugurated kingdom of God. He went to the cross of his own volition in fulfillment of prophecy, and in doing so he crushed the head of the serpent who is Satan. His death on the cross satisfied our sin debt and ascended 
Into heaven he proved his victory over death, hell, and the grave. Jesus overcame sin because we couldn't. His atonement on Calvary not only paid our sin debt, but it healed us from the pain of our sin and provided for us physical, emotional, and spiritual healing as well. There is power in that blood. Jesus healed your body because you didn't have the power on your own. As he ascended into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to earth, baptizing the apostles and the early church on the day of the Holy Spirit, the church was empowered to reach their world through the supernatural gifts of the Spirit. Jesus baptized in the Holy Spirit because we need the power. And right now, he is at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf, testifying of what he did on the cross for us to the Father, waiting to return, to meet his church in the air at the sound of the trumpet on that day, to usher in the age of his kingdom made visible on the earth as he rules and reigns as king for all eternity. Amen? can't wait for the day. I hope you're ready for it. I, I told you as a, a child that I, I used to fear Christ's return, but that was because I believed a counterfeit gospel. I believed a counterfeit gospel where my salvation was dependent on my present right behavior. Now that I know the real deal, I know the true Jesus. I've encountered the life-changing work of the real gospel. Christ's return is truly a blessed hope. Where he sets everything that is wrong in this world right. I have no fear of that day. Because my faith is based in Christ's righteousness and not my own. Anything else comes counterfeit spirit. Close with this. That counterfeit spirit is the spirit of the law. It's what Paul so emphatically warned the Galatian church about in Galatians chapter 4. He writes this, Before you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to the so-called gods that do not even exist. So now that you know God, or should I say, now that God knows you, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak useless spiritual principles of this world. You're trying to earn favor with God by observing certain days or months or seasons or years. I fear for you. Perhaps all my hard work is for nothing. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you, live as I do in freedom from these things. For I've become like you Gentiles, free from the law. That spirit of legalism, the spirit of the law, is the useless spiritual principle of the world. Legalism takes good advice and makes it into laws to obey. Christ came and lived a perfect life, fulfilling every requirement of the law so that we could be set free from slavery to the law. The spirit of the law is concerned with looking good. The Holy Spirit is concerned with good fruit. You know, if you don't look too closely at 
a bowl of wax apples. It'll look a lot like the real thing. I'll try biting into one and see what happens. See which one tastes better. It's easy to mistake the spirit of legalism spirit because misunderstand the tension of right behavior in the Christian life. We mistake the fruit of the spirit for the spirit of the law. Legalists will say that right behavior is important. It's the most important thing. What you do matters. Stop sinning, you heathens. Which is true. However, the motivation is off. The spirit of the law says, I have to do right in order to gain God's approval. The Holy Spirit says you are more loved than you could ever know. And because of that, you want to please my heavenly Father. The spirit of the law operates to gain a position of acceptance. The spirit of truth operates from a position of acceptance. You are already a part of the family. So yes, behavior does matter. But we do right because of our right standing with God. Not to gain right standing. We must always be on guard against the spirit of the law. And every other counterfeit that masquerades itself as truth. Do you know how to identify a counterfeit? Secret Service agents will tell you this. There's no possible way to study all the different flaws and mistakes that present themselves in counterfeit bills. There are simply too many of them out there to know every mistake that could possibly be made. They have a much better method. Secret Service agents study the real deal so closely that anything that doesn't measure up to the exact standard will stand out like a sore thumb. They become experts on the genuine article and it makes the fakes easy to identify. See, there's, there's no possible way I could educate you on all of the false gospels and false Christs and counterfeit teachings and imposters and false spirits out in the world today. In fact, I probably don't even have the knowledge to educate you on all of those things. But what I do know is the real Jesus. every head bowed and eye closed. Perhaps today the Holy Spirit is stirring something in your heart. Perhaps today for the first time you've realized that you've put your faith in a counterfeit. Can I tell you today the real thing is waiting. Jesus stands with his arms open, waiting to accept you into his arms. He wants us to lay down all of our counterfeits, all of our false gods, our false idols, and false beliefs, so that we can truly walk in freedom. Not bound by the spirit of the law. that's you, I invite you to pray with me this morning. Father God, I come to you right now. I realize that I have put my faith in a counterfeit. 
God, I lay it down at your feet. Give me the real thing. God, I, I admit that I've messed up before you. I've sinned. Forgive me. And cleanse me. Make me whole. by your Holy Spirit continue to lead us into all truth that we might know you the way that you are. The word became flesh. Perfect truth. Perfect righteousness. Perfect justice. We thank you for all that you are all that you've done for us and all you will continue to do. God, reign on your throne in our hearts. We worship you today. We give you glory and honor and praise for you are the only one who deserves it. Cleanse us. prayer partners will be here up at the front if you'd like to pray. If you have any need, we'd love to partner with you. For the rest of you, we thank you for joining us today and go and be blessed. We'll see you back here next week.